Well, open your Bible back to the book of Daniel, back to the book of Daniel. We will be embarking and really finishing up chapter 2 today. We have the Lord's table before us. Next week we'll be in the fiery furnace So you don't want to miss that. We'll do all of chapter 3 in two messages. And what an exciting time that is in chapter 3 with uh, the golden image and the fiery furnace. And we're just marching along. But let me bow us in a word of prayer and ask for his blessing. Lord, we are in need of you. You are a great God. Father, you have already won. Father, the victory was accomplished at the cross, at the resurrection, but it will be fully consummated in the day to come. And we're gonna look at that today. Lord, would you tune our eyes, tune our hearts to the hearing of the word of God. Father, you know how the world began and here we'll see the explanation of the finality of all of it as we look into the book of Daniel. Father, we commit our time to you. Would you mend broken hearts that have wept this week over difficulty and trial? Would you lift up the downcast? Would you lift up those who feel like I believe but help my unbelief? Lord, make it work in such a way that as we come to the Lord's table, Christ is exalted in every way who is the central point of all of the scripture, who is the focus of all of the scripture, and who will be the focus not only uh, at the beginning, but at the end. And so, Lord, we rejoice in it in Christ's name. Amen. As we look in Daniel chapter 2, a a biblical theology was emerging before my mind, and it's the word providence. Providence, very similar to the sovereignty of God who is overall. Providence is his ability to see into the details that make it all work. It means literally providence to see beforehand. It it means to, to provide for. And it means that God knows everything before it happens because in his eternal counsel, he planned it all. He planned, Psalm 33, everything. He said in Isaiah 46, I am God. There is none like me. I have planned it and I will also do it. That's providence. In fact, providence, according to the Heidelberg Catechism, I think it was question number 28, says that the Almighty, everywhere present, power of God, whereby as it were by his hand, still upholds in heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them, here's the detail, so that the herbs and grass and rain and drought Fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come 
not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. True of the book of Daniel, true precisely in your life, no matter where I find you this day in your walk with the Lord. In fact, we have seen over the years in our exposition of the scripture, God is in providential control over a giant fish in Jonah 1. Like, how did he do that? Providence. Like, did he, how did he beam it down to him? I don't know. But he told that great fish in so many words, the fish didn't know there's a man coming overboard. And I want you to be at this point, latitude and longitude in the waters, and he's providential over a fish. Then in Jonah 4, he's providential over a worm that he appointed to come up and eat the shade, if you will, that had been provided by Jonah. He's providential, come next week, over every detail of the fiery furnace and the three friends who were tossed in there. He's providential in Daniel 6 over the lion's den who somehow had lockjaw when Daniel's in the den and then when they threw in the other guys, they were consumed with broken bones before they hit the ground. Listen, he's in control of every detail of our life. He's in control over Satan himself in Job chapter 1, chapter 2. You may do this, but don't do this. And here, as your Bible is open to Daniel chapter 2, we see his providence displayed. Daniel 2 really gives the most comprehensive prophetic panoramic picture in scripture on the history of the human civilization starting at least in Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar all the way to the end of the world. It is an amazing prophecy. And in chapter two, we're looking at four different acts in Nebuchadnezzar's dream that reveals God's sovereignty over the nations. He was sovereign over Daniel's life and the nation of Israel in chapter 1. But here in 2, he's sovereign over the nations. And we really looked at the first three acts. There's commotion in the king's court. He had a dream. Dreams, plural. And he could not go to sleep. So effective was this dream of this massive statue that he had royal insomnia, and he's bothered by it. In fact, the king answered, look in 2.5, and he said to the Chaldeans, those were the mystics of the day, the word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses be laid in ruins." And so here is the king's court, the most massive court, largest court, most powerful court in all of the land. And though he can conquer kingdoms, if you will, 
He can't conquer his dream, and they couldn't interpret it. And if you can interpret it, I'll tear, tear you from limb to limb. In fact, if you look in verse 6, but if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. And you know that they went to buy some more time and then glanced down at 2.12. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious. He's in a rage. <clears throat> and he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the edict went out. They were going to destroy all the wise men of Babylon, which included at this point Daniel and his three friends. So there's commotion in the court. Then in 2.14 down through 30, there's the revelation of the night dream. Nobody can interpret the dream except Daniel could because look at verse 19. The mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night and then Daniel blessed the Lord his God and he blessed him and praised him. And so here there's commotion but the commotion leads to the revelation given to Daniel. And then thirdly, in the third act, he gives the interpretation of the dream. You can imagine King Nebuchadnezzar, he refused to tell the details to anyone, but Daniel now was given that uh, revelation, if you will, and now he's interpreting the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, and it runs really all the way from 31 to verse, down through verse uh, 45. And the key, and this is where we'll pick up, is 10 different times from verse 37 to verse 44, the word kingdom is used. So he's describing in this dream the future kingdoms that will come, but he's going to peel off and look to the consummation of the greatest king. But what he does in this dream is he interprets these four kingdoms that come in succession. And he said the first kingdom is the head of gold and it's you, Nebuchadnezzar. You are that head of gold. Then he brings a second kingdom and he describes the kingdom with chest and arms and it was silver. And we know from Daniel chapter 5, verse 28 through 31, and from history, that that is the Medo-Persian empire, if you will. And then the third kingdom is the Greek kingdom, which was the belly and thighs of bronze. We knew that to be the kingdom of Greece, ruled by Alexander the Great. And that was all last week's message. And so go always listen online if you need to refresh that. And then we left off at the fourth kingdom. The fourth kingdom is the Roman kingdom. And it's described with the legs coming down, if you will. And it speaks of its legs and it speaks of its toes. Let me pick it up with you in verse 40. And there shall be, he's, you can imagine Nebuchadnezzar jaw dropped open. It be, not because this 
was history. He's prophesying here. But because he's interpreting the massive, gigantic statue. And there shall be, verse 40, a fourth kingdom. Now you'll know, I shouldn't stop everywhere. There shall be a fourth kingdom. It's the Roman kingdom. It's not a kingdom at this point. It's a little tidy, tiny village on the Tab- Tabor River. And he's telling Daniel what that statue meant and what these kingdoms will be prophesying hundreds of years before they took place. And of course, this is why the critics want to date Daniel in the second century instead of the sixth century BC. It's obviously sixth century BC. You say, well, is that a question? Well, it never was a question until the 19th century when they wanted to debunk the value of biblical prophecy and they say that there's no way that a man could give that dream out and that dream go through four successive empires and it happened just like this. But here he's prophesying there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things and like iron that crushes It shall break and crush all these things. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. Here's the third kingdom. It's the kingdom, the Roman kingdom. And he predicts in the future four kingdoms that dominate history. And then I think there's a view even to the end of the world. In fact, I remind you when Nebuchadnezzar dreamed this dream, Persia was merely a Babylonian vassal state. The Greeks were a group of warring tribes. And as I mentioned, Rome was a little village on the Tiber River. But clearly, you can get into all the focus of the the pieces of the statue. But the focus of this dream, the central point of it, is not the particulars of the statue and what they represent. The focus beloved, is on the stone and the kingdom that the stone represents. In fact, it's obvious that the stone eclipses and pulverizes every other human kingdom, okay? And it moves to a a final kingdom, Whether you want to call this a fifth kingdom, I just call it a final kingdom. Put your eyes on 34 and 35. You'll see it there. And as you looked, a stone, verse 34, was cut by no human hand. In other words, it's divine. And it struck the image. Humanly, you want to say it struck the image at the head. And killed it. It's not what this says. It struck the image at its 
feet. And you can understand why the feet, because after it struck the feet, the whole thing just toppled. In fact, look at 34, the image on the feet, the iron and the clay, and it broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, verse 35, all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain, and it filled the whole earth. That looms large, the stone. It's cut out of the mountain. It is hurled down, if you will. It, you know, obliterates the feet, and it just kind of comes down like a card house. Now look at verse 44. In the days of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the, shall the kingdom be left to another people. There's no kingdom after this one. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, second time he mentions it, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. And here's Daniel. He's got his life on the line. He's 18. (laughs) And he says there in 45, the dream is certain and the interpretation, sure. So whatever we're talking about by the Spirit of God today, this dream is certain, and the interpretation is sure. Now, you'll note there that this stone, and I'm just capturing in 34, it breaks them in pieces. Verse 35 It's so shattering, not a trace is found. It says in verse 44, it will crush and put it in to all these kingdoms. So who is that stone, I'm asking you, and who is that mountain that fills the earth? Throughout the word of God, and I will show you, the stone is none other than who? the person of Jesus Christ. And the mountain that fills the earth is the growing kingdom of God. In other words, these empires are going to be replaced, but there is one that is coming that, like a mountain, the kingdom of God, it will continue to grow. But first, the stone. Who is the stone? I think some of these will come up on the screen, like when Peter, writing in the New Testament, said, as you come to him, as you come to Christ, there he's called a living stone. Christ is the stone that is cut out without human hands. He has divine origin. He is God. He is deity in the flesh. He is the second person of 
the Trinity. And here, as you come to him, Peter says, as a living stone by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in the scripture... And he's quoting here Isaiah 28, 16. I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor, he says, does Peter, is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, you've seen that phrase. The stone here, the, the, he's quoting the stone that the builders rejected. That is Psalm 118 verse 22. That the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So there you see that connection. The stone here in the New Testament is none other than Jesus Christ. You can see from that scripture that the word stone and the word rock are used interchangeably. So here this stone that's going to conquer all kingdoms, all nations, all rulers is the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writing to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10.4 says they all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was what? Christ. He's the stone. He's the rock. In Acts 4, 10 and 11, you know it. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that at the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this Jesus is the, what, or what, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders, and it's become the chief cornerstone. The stone is none other than Jesus Christ. We know that, and I know that, and you know that. Remember just a few months back in the book of Ephesians, Christ Jesus in Ephesians 2.20 is himself being the cornerstone. And so he is the chief Stone, And of course, this, as we're looking at it, is fulfilled prophecy in Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected, Israel, has become the cornerstone. It's Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 21, 22, he is the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's right there in the gospel of Matthew, verse 44. The one who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So for those who believe, it's precious. But if you reject Christ, it will fall on you and crush you. So Jesus Christ is the rock. 
In Isaiah 8:14, he will become a sanctuary and a stone uh, and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. Jesus is the stone. Now, the question would come, you'd, you'd agree with that. Is the mountain that fills the earth, is it the first coming or is it the second coming? Some would see that mountain as only the first coming. They would say that we're in the millennial kingdom now. And, and I would agree with that, but they'd only see it in that light. And that this mountain that is growing is the mountain of the gospel going to every tribe, every nation, every tongue. It's a growing mountain. We would see not only the stone at the first coming, but we would recognize this mountain as well at the second coming. Let me see if I can tell you. So the answer to the question, is it the first or second coming? The answer is yes. It says in the book of Matthew in 3, 1 and 2, when he began his ministry in the days of John the Baptist, he came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so the kingdom was at hand. It came and was inaugurated when Christ came to earth. There's, there's an aspect that the kingdom is here, but the kingdom is on its way as well. Because he said, whenever you enter a town, do not receive you. Go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that you cling to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. So there's no question that the kingdom came and was inaugurated when Christ came. Paul in Acts 28 said that when they had appointed for him a day, they came to him at the lodging in great numbers from morning till evening, and he expounded to them. It says that he was expounding and testifying regarding the kingdom of God. In fact, in Acts 28, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness. So I, we know as we look at our Old Testament, our New Testament, when Jesus came, the kingdom came. It inaugurated at least. It wasn't fully consummated, but it began. But we also know too that it's fully revealed in his second coming. Because remember in John 18, 36, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this, what? World. So whatever that kingdom is, it's a rule. It is first coming in the heart of believers, but it's not the full eclipse of what he desired it to be. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be, not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom, Jesus said, is not of this world. Uh, when you read, maybe you could read on your own in Luke 19, when he told them a, a, a parable because they supposed, it says there, that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. 
And he said a nobleman went into a, a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, then return. And of course, in Luke 19, Jesus is the nobleman who will return at his second coming. The reason I'm saying this is there's some who are in the Christian faith who are all millennial. We believe in the thousand year reign of Christ. Some would say there is no millennium. We go from this life into the eternal state. But when you're reading the book of Daniel, 33, 34, 44, and 45, you're seeing something else described there. In fact, you would ask the question, did Christ's first coming destroy world empires? I mean, when you go back to the stone, hit the feet, crushed, obliterated, no other kingdom will come, no other kingdom will stand, this kingdom will stand forever. Daniel is looking beyond the inauguration of the kingdom. And he's looking to a time and place where Jesus Christ will rule and reign. And so you say, well, what would an amillennial say there? Well, they would say that he's reigning in the heart of believers. And I, I understand that. We would affirm that. But when Christ came, um, did he start ruling and reigning? I think we would all say no. Actually, on the contrary, Rome crucified our Lord. Rome put him to death. And so we are then, in this sense, waiting for the fulfillment of the image that gets crushed in dramatic fashion by a pulverizing blow. And I think I would say to you, I just don't think this has happened in history. In fact, to be perfectly honest, the Roman kingdom stayed intact for another five centuries after the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Western Empire stayed intact all the way to 476 until they were conquered at Constantinople. The Eastern Empire of the Roman Empire went all the way to 1453 until it was captured by the Turks. So as he's describing this statue, there appears to be two different forms of the Roman government, is the thought. In other words, he's paralleling chapter 2 with chapter 7 regarding the beast. And in the beast, there's another vision given, and it's not captured in toes, as it is in Daniel 2. It's captured, if you will, with 10 kings. In fact, look over to Daniel 7 just for a moment. I'll let Daniel 7 exposit that when we get there. But in Daniel 7, I believe we're looking at a future phase of a revived Roman Empire at the end of the world. Okay? You say, how so? Well, look at 7, 23. He said, as for the fourth beast, you sh you, there you shall see a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different than all the other kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. And as for the 
10 horns, out of the kingdom come 10 kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and he shall put down the three kings and speak words. Obviously, this is now the Antichrist. He will speak words against the Most High and shall wear down the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. I mean, it's frightening. You can keep on in 26, but the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion, see, we don't believe this has happened yet, has been, take, will be taken away at that time to be consumed and destroyed to the end and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. We're still waiting for that final consummation. In fact, if you want more reading, it's in the book of Revelation in chapter 17, where it refers back to the 10 kings there. In fact, go back to Daniel 2 now. It says in verse 44, in the days of those kings, you say, well, many would interpret that just the kings that we've been describing but I don't think so. In the days of those kings, the 10 kings in Daniel 7, 7, in Daniel 7, 20, in Daniel 7, 24. In other words, there, there appears to be here kind of a future revived Roman empire and it says at the end of the world, glance at it again in 44, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. What's he talking about? He's talking about there the coming kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ at his second coming. When he comes again, he's not coming as he did in his first coming in humility. He's coming in power and he's coming in glory. In fact, Daniel even describes it. Look over at Daniel 7 in the same chapter that we were looking at. In Daniel 7, there's that great scene of the Son of Man who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Daniel says, I saw in the night vision, 7.13, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came into the Ancient of Days, that's the throne room of God, and he was presented before him, and to him, the Son of Man was given, uh, it says there, dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, and dominion in an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one 
that shall not be destroyed. In other words, at our Lord's glorious second coming, he will deliver a knockout blow to all kingdoms, to all kings, and they will all be demolished and the rule of Christ will be reigning physically on earth, Revelation 20, for 1,000 years. And so here, he rules today in our hearts, but there is a coming day at his second coming where he will physically, literally be ruling over every nation, every king, every ruler, every kingdom. This is hope for us, is it not? Our focus, our agenda is not here. Our life is not here. We are aliens and strangers waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here what Daniel is prophesying is that the God who enthroned Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdoms of Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome will one day give all authority to Jesus Christ who will rule the world at his second coming. And when he comes, beloved, he will deal a decisive blow and come in great power and glory and crush all kingdoms. When you read the book of Revelation, you read that about his second coming. It says this in Revelation 19. It's a wonderful section, verse 11 through 21, where it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations. We're waiting for that day. And so don't get lost. Don't get discouraged. Don't become so depressed with our country, our state, there is a day coming where Jesus Christ will strike down all his enemies and he will rule them, Revelation 19, 15, with a rod of iron. That's the day we're waiting for, right? So Daniel's gonna give you a view from Nebuchadnezzar I'd say all the way to the end of the world to the setting up of that physical, literal kingdom. It says in the book of Isaiah, and I'm just highlighting this, that he will, shall strike the earth uh, with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. So if you're wanting the wicked to go away and we pray that, Lord, exalt righteousness in this nation, but it is coming. It says he will strike down the nations and rule them and he will, if you will, slay them with the breath of his lips. He's gonna kill the wicked. He, in fact, go over to 2 Thessalonians. Let me just show you this because this and there's so many allusions here, but we'll get to more of them as we go. But in the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, it's talking about the return of Christ, right? It's talking about that the day of the Lord has come. They're fearful. But he says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. I'm, I'm just pausing because I'm thinking about a very popular teacher today by the, by the name of Doug Wilson, who's clearly a post-millennialist who doesn't look at the reign of Christ being inaugurated at the second coming 
certain post-millennials believe that once we conquer, once we navigate ourselves in this world, we will usher in the kingdom and Christ will come after the thousand-year reign. But when I read my Bible here, that day, the second coming, it says, until the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness, who is that? It's the Antichrist that he's revealed the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Now as we get down to Daniel 7, you're gonna see this character called Antiochus Epiphanes. And people would get around 2 Thessalonians and say that happened back with Antiochus Epiphanes and we're saying oh no it's the future it's the reign of Antichrist he's going to rule for time times and half a time at least it's going to go wrong but I wanted to bring you down to this in verse 8 2 Thessalonians 2 8 and then he the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus Christ watch this will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his, what? Coming. At his second coming is gonna be a cataclysmic change. And beloved, he's gonna set his rule up on this earth. You say, well, what would it be like? Well, I could just share a little bit with you. At that time, at his second coming, he's gonna regather the nation of Israel Matthew chapter 24. Matthew, uh, it says in Zechariah 12 that there's going to be a big conversion of Jewish people. The, the people of God that merge into that, the, there's a restored land ruled by the Messiah. You say, what would it be like in the millennium reign? Well, I can tell you, most of them are Old Testament prophecies and promises. The millennium will be a time of peace in Micah chapter four. It will be a time of joy, Isaiah 61. In Amos chapter nine, there will be no poverty. In Isaiah chapter 35, there will be no sickness. It will be a time, Matthew 25, of righteousness. It will be a time of obedience, Jeremiah 31. It will be a time of holiness, Isaiah 35. In Isaiah 65, it will be characterized by truth. And it will be a time characterized in Joel 2 by the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the King of kings and the Lord of lords is going to be reigning. And so listen, as you live in this world, you have to realize we've got something else coming. And maybe just a final point before we go into communion. There's topographical changes in the millennium. So where do you get those? Well, they're all out of the Old Testament. You say, well, what would people do to, if there's no millennial? They would spiritualize these truths and say that they're now swallowed up in the church, but... I'm not reading that in Isaiah 2. I think it will come up. It shall come to pass in the latter days. We mean the latter, latter days. That the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the, high, as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills. Now, we're going to take that 
literally, okay? And the nation shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. Well, would that be great? Instead of Judge Judy, it's Judge the Lord, right? We've got in some courts, wicked courts, but he's gonna be the judge in that day, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. All of that is in Zechariah 14. There is coming a reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it, it's funny. It speaks of the mountain. But in the Babylonian court, Nebuchadnezzar's chief god, according to the archaeologists, that they find all these things dug up. His chief god, I've mentioned him to you, was a, name, a god by the name of Bel Merodach. Belmeridoc's special name was Shadu Rabu, okay? Shadu Radu, not to be confused with Shamu the whale, okay? Okay? And you know what Shadu Rabu means? It means a great mountain. Ne Nebuchadnezzar thought Shabu Rabu, Belmeridoc, was the great mountain. But Daniel said that that stone that hit the image filled the whole earth and became a great mountain. Basically, he's saying to Nebuchadnezzar, your God has been replaced. Listen, we serve the only true God, amen? May it be that we worship him and give him glory. Would you bow your head?